Praise the Lord, everybody. Well, the good news is, I think I'm the last, the last one on the schedule before good Lord willing pastors get back and we return you to your regularly scheduled program. I don't know, uh, I don't know how they do it. I was listening to Brother David tell what their schedule was going to be and I know a few a few years ago, right after I got out of college, I went over and spent about a month with uh, my uncle over there. My uncle was a missionary to Indonesia and Malaysia, and I spent about a month with him. And on my way back, my uncle told me, he said, now, 3.30 in the morning is the magic number. He says, you'll wake up about 3.30 in the morning, just be wide awake, and you won't be able to go back to sleep. And then you'll be good till about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then you would just crash. And I thought, well, I don't think it'll affect me that much. But sure enough, I got back to the States and 3.30 in the morning, I was wide awake. I was ready to go. And about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I crashed. So I don't know how, I don't know, I don't know how the show strands do it where they go all that time and then come back and they're at church the next day and able to function. I, I had to take about a week to recover after I got back to get back on the right time zone. Well, tonight I want to talk on the subject, a message from the king. And I'll tell you what, what got me thinking about this particular subject. It happened, uh, it happened a couple months ago, probably right before Halloween. I have, it, I have it set up through the post office to where if I'm getting mail in, the, in the, that day, they'll take a picture of it, and then they send me an email of what's going to be delivered to me that day. And so most of the time, you know, you look at it, and it's just junk mail, and you're like, ah, when it gets here, I'll just throw it away. But on this particular day, they sent me a picture. First thing in the morning, I woke up. I checked my email as I was laying there in bed, and I saw that, as expected, most of it was junk mail, but there was a, there was a uh, card, an envelope in the mail, like that they would send a, uh, a greeting card or something in. And the return address on it was in Columbus. And I thought, who would be sending me a letter from Columbus? And so I started thinking about it, and I thought, well, the company I work for is, is based in Columbus. Maybe somebody is sending me a card from work. So I got up and I started, I started looking through work emails, you know, to see if somebody had sent an email like, hey, be on the lookout for, you know, this. And I, I didn't have any emails and it said anybody was sending me anything. So I started checking the calendar and see, you know, do I have like a work anniversary or something coming up that they'd be sending me a card and couldn't think of any reason that anybody from work would be sending me a card. So then I thought, well, maybe there's, a, there's an upcoming holiday. And I checked the calendar, and Halloween was coming up, but you, you people don't usually send greeting cards for Halloween. So I thought, well, it's, it's not a holiday coming up, so that, that couldn't be it. And I know, I know some of y'all like to start, you know, the Christmas holiday season a little early, but that was, that was even a little too early for, for y'all to be sending out uh, Christmas greeting cards, so I knew it wasn't that. 
So then I started thinking about it, and I thought, well, you know, I have, I have heard people give testimonies about how they received an unexpected check in the mail. And I thought, maybe somebody is sending me a check, and this is what I can... And uh, so I started checking to see if there was any reason that anybody might be sending me a check for something. And after a while, I, th I thought, you know, it's probably, it's probably not a check. Then I thought, well, maybe it's a love letter. I might have a secret admirer somewhere that might be sending me a love letter. Then I thought, well, that, that's, probably, that's probably not it either. So all day long, I was going back and forth. What could be in this envelope? And I was trying to figure it out. And finally, as I'm sitting there at work, I'm working on my computer in my living room, I heard in the middle of the afternoon, and that's the problem with this system, when they send you the email of what's coming, you have to then wait all day before you finally get whatever's coming to you. So in the middle of the afternoon, I hear the mailman putting the mail in my box, and I run out and get the envelope, and <clears throat> all the other stuff went straight into the trash. It was junk mail, as I'm sure many of you probably get as well. But then there was this envelope that I had been thinking about all day, trying to figure out what would this envelope be. So I tear it open, and I, inside is a post, little postcard thing. And I pull it out, and it says, we have been trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. <laughs> and I thought, after thinking about this envelope all day, it ended up being junk mail. So the moral of the story is, now that we are going into the holiday season, if any of you do decide to send me a Christmas card or anything, put your name on the envelope so that I don't wait around all day trying to figure out who is sending me a card. And I thought about this, I thought, you know, that's probably why important people hire people to screen their mail form. <clears throat> you know, I work for, I used to work in the call center, and it always amused me, we would get people that would be upset about something or another, and they'd say, I want to talk to your CEO, put the CEO on the, the line. And I work, I work for a pretty big company. You know, if you go to a mom and pop shop downtown, you may be able to go in and say, I want to talk to the owner, and, and they would probably, they may be there, you might be able to talk to the owner, but for a major corporation, the chances of you calling up and talking to the CEO, pretty slim. You know, I may be able to escalate it and send it to my supervisor, and if you're really upset, you may get all the way up to, you know, a department manager but the chances of you making it to a vice president or a president or much less the CEO of the company is pretty slim because they hire people so that they don't have to deal with these kind of things. And, you know, it's the same thing with politicians. You could, you could call up the White House and say, hey, put Joe on the phone. I got a few things I'd like to discuss with him. And if you did that, you're going to encounter somebody on the other end of the phone that says, if they're going to ask you the question, and who are you? And when they ask you that, they're really not asking you what your name is. Really what they're asking you is, and why should the president want to talk to you? For example, if I called up and said, I want to talk to the president, and they said, who are you? I could say, who am I? My name is Matthew White. And they're going to look up and say, that, 
that doesn't mean a thing to us. I don't have enough power to get an audience with the president. But if I could call up and say, my name is Matthew White, and during the last election, I donated $25 million to the president's campaign, well, then all of a sudden they would say, oh, well, let's see about getting you an appointment. That would probably get you an audience with the president because we got an election coming up and he's running again. So he's probably going to need some money this election to help his campaign. So he would probably want to talk to you if he knew that there was a possibility you'd be donating $25 million to his campaign. See, when you send a message to someone important, they want to know who you are and why you matter. And in the Bible, it talks about the story of uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And he sends a message to Hezekiah. And he's telling the people of Israel what he's going to, to do to them. And he starts off, his introduction is, hear the words of the great king. He, he is distinguishing himself that he's not just an ordinary king. This isn't, this isn't King Bob from some little tribe that you've never heard of before. He says, I am not just a king, I am the great king, the king of Assyria. And then he proceeds to tell them all the things that he has done to all the kings of the other nations. So what is he doing? He's identifying who he is and what his credentials are and why you should listen to what he has to say. Now, with that in mind, I want to take a look at the story of Moses. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's court, so he knew what the protocol was. I'm sure being in Pharaoh's court, he probably saw Pharaoh have meetings with leaders of all sorts of different nations. And I'm sure when messengers came from the other leaders, the first thing they would do is identify who they were coming from and what the message was why they wanted to meet with Pharaoh. So with that being said, when he encounters God in the desert, he sees the burning bush and God tells him, I want you to go back to Israel and set my people free. The first thing that Moses says to him is, who shall I say sent me? In Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, it says, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shall thou say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. See, Moses knew that if he was going to Egypt and he was going to talk to Pharaoh and he was going to say, God sent me to say, let my people go, the question on Pharaoh's mind was going to be, what God? Why should I care what your God has to say? And so he asked God, who shall I say sent me? And he wasn't asking God, you know, just tell me what your name is. What he was really wanting to know is, what are your credentials? What shall I tell them 
to make them know that they should listen to what you have to say. And God says, I am that I am. God is laying out his credentials for Moses. And the interesting thing is he refuses to limit himself to just what they need at that particular moment. See, they needed a deliverer. And I'm sure that Moses probably thought, you know, Lord, you're telling me to let my people go, and I'm going to go to Pharaoh and tell him that God said he's going to deliver his people. What credentials are you going to give me? And I'm sure he was expecting God to say something like, I'm the almighty God. I'm the creator of the universe. I am a deliverer. Look at all the things I've done. But God just says, I am that I am. What he was saying is, you need a deliverer right now, and you're, you're just looking for a deliverer. But what you don't know is, you're also going to need a way maker. See, I th I'm sure that they probably thought, Lord, if you could just get us out of Egypt, if you could just get us out from under Pharaoh's control, we can find the way ourselves. We can, we can get a map, and we can, you know, put it in our GPS, and we can we can find the way to where we need to go ourselves. All we need is a deliverer. But God was saying, you, you're going to also need me to be a way maker. And when you find yourself trapped at the Red Sea and mountains on both sides and Pharaoh is coming after you, you don't know that you're going to be in that situation right now. But when you find yourself in that situation, just know that I am a way maker. When you get out into the desert and there's serpents and they come and bite you and you've been poisoned and at that point, you're going to need God to be a healer. And when you find yourself in that situation, you're not thinking about it right now, but when you get there, just know that I am that I am. When you get out in the desert and you run out of food and you need manna and quail and you find yourself in need of a provider, just know that when you find yourself in that situation, whatever your I am moment is, where you say, I am in need of a provider, I am in need of a healer, when you get to that situation, God is just saying, I am that I am. Whatever the need is that you have, that's what I'm going to be. He's saying, I'm not going to limit myself to just what you need in this moment, but I'm going to be whatever you need me to be in the future as well. See, we, we sing that song sometimes, the, the song Waymaker. It says, Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness. And then it says, that is who you are. It doesn't say, Miracle Worker, that's what you've done. It says, that is who you are. In other words, he has done it so often that it has become part of his identity. See, that makes, that makes a big difference. Because as, as an example, if, if Bishop said to me, Matthew, one of these electrical outlets up here is not working. We need you to, we need you to fix this electrical outlet. We've got a brand new outlet here. All you need to do is put it in and change out the electrical outlet. Well, I could probably get on YouTube and do a search of how to change an electrical outlet, and I could probably find a video on it, and 
I could probably go over there and, you know, there's a cover. I could figure out how to take it off. And, and I could look at the new outlet and I could look at the old outlet and I could say, if I take, if I take this wire off of this screw and put it onto this one, and if I take that wire off of that screw and put it onto this one, they look the same. I could probably figure out how to change an electrical outlet. But being able to perform a task doesn't make me an electrician. And if you had a big need, if you had, you know, if you were rewiring your house, you probably wouldn't want to hire somebody that says, oh, yeah, I can do that. There's all kinds of videos on YouTube. I can look that up and I could, I could figure out how to do that. You, would, you want somebody that says, of course I can take care of that. I am an electrician. And the moment that somebody says, I am an electrician, a plumber, whatever the case may be, that changes my expectation of them. See, if you came in and said, yeah, I can, I can figure it out. I've seen a lot of YouTube videos and, you know, you'd come in and you'd start working on something there. And what's probably going to happen is I'm going to be looking over your shoulder going, you, you sure that, you sure that goes there? That, that looks like it might go on the other side. Are you sure that that's connected properly? That doesn't look quite right to me. Because if I wanted somebody that could just look it up on YouTube, I could just do it myself. But the moment you say, I am an electrician, well, now I expect you to be able to change an electrical outlet. So at that point, I would just come in and say, there, there's, there's the problem. You take care of it. I'm going to go in the room and you just do your thing. Why? Because you have identified yourself as an electrician. So God is establishing his identity when he says, I am. He's saying, I have done, I have done this, whatever you need me to do. You need me to be a healer? I've healed so many times. It's just, it's become part of my identity. How often do we, you know, bring our needs to God sometimes and we want to say, Lord, I've got this situation. I need you to make a way in this situation. And then we stand there and say, now, Lord, if, if you would just do it this way and if you would change these things and work it out. Like... But God says, no, 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 I am a way maker. I have done this so often. I know, I know what I'm doing. That should change our expectation of God when we get an understanding of who he is. See, in Egypt, they worshiped multiple different gods. If you needed protection in battle, you would go to one God. And if you wanted to have a healthy baby, you prayed to another God. If you wanted safe travels, well, then you would, you would pray to another God. But God was telling Israel, I'm going to be the only God that you need. See, Israel had been in bondage for over 400 years. They didn't know God as a deliverer. They'd only known that their great-grandpa had a relationship with God. I'm sure they had heard stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their relationship with God, and they had probably heard about Joseph, but those were, those were distant stories. They didn't know what God was able to do for them. So not only did Pharaoh need to know who God was, 
Israel also needed to know who God was. They needed to have an experience with God. That was, that was kind of the point of the entire plagues that ended up being sent, not only to convince Egypt, but God wanted Israel to know, I am able to do whatever I need to do to fulfill my word. So then, after he has identified who he is, then he gives them the message. It's, it's kind of like, you know, the, the kings would send a message and say, this is who I am, this is what I'm going to do. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, it says, Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. See, in the Bible, Egypt is a type of sin. Israel had gone into Egypt because they thought it looked like a safe place. And they were fine for a while, but then they became enslaved. And sin is the same way. Sin puts limitations on your life. When Moses went to Pharaoh, he says, we're going to go to the desert and we're going to worship. And Pharaoh said, okay, you can go, but you have to leave behind your women and children. You have to leave behind your cattle and your possessions. What was he doing? He was putting limitations on them. You can go this far, but you can go no farther. And Satan also has taskmasters of fear and doubt, condemnation. And every time you come to church and you think, I'm going to worship or I'm going to do something for God, there seems to be something holding you back. Maybe one of those taskmasters says, who do you think you are? What do you think they would think if, if they knew about you? See, God could have given them favor with Pharaoh and just left them in Egypt. That was how they were for many years. They lived in Egypt. They had favor with Pharaoh. Joseph was second in command. He could have just said, I'm going to restore, restore that, that the way it was. But he had bigger plans for them. He wanted to bring them out from where they had settled. See, the land that he had for them was a major crossroads of the world at that time. God wanted to put his people in a place of influence, but he had to bring them out of Egypt to do that. There has always been a call of separation on the people of God. He didn't want people to look at his chosen people and mistake them for the Egyptians. He said, I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to put you in a place of influence. And then the second thing that he tells them he's going to do, he says, I will deliver you. Now, you might think being delivered and being brought out, those kind of sound like the same thing. But Israel's needed to be delivered from more than just the Egyptians. See, after 400 years in bondage, your whole attitude, your mentality begins to change. Just as an example, it was just over 400 years ago that the pilgrims came to America. How much has changed 
since that time in America. I had a couple years ago, I went to Plymouth and got to see the original settlement there, you know, where they had rebuilt the homes and things. And I don't know, maybe you think your home is small, but I can tell you it's probably not as small as what they lived in. They had a little tiny one-room house, a little bed in the corner, and, and that was about all. And they had a fireplace there that they would do their cooking in. They didn't have refrigerators and stoves and indoor plumbing and all the things that we take for granted today. And then they also, you know, I remember reading in school about their church services, and they would have ushers that would walk up and down, and they had these long poles that they would carry. And on one end, they'd have like a, a tail or something. So if you, you know, if the older people fell asleep during service, ushers would come and tickle their nose with that little feather that came and wake them back up. And on the other side, they had like a wooden knob on it. So if the kids were misbehaving during the service, the ushers would walk up and wrap them on the head with it and get their attention. Well, times have changed a lot since then. I help out with the ushering staff. I can't, I don't think I would be safe if I walked the aisles and saw somebody's kid misbehave and just reached over and slapped the kid. I'd probably have a real angry mother coming after me saying, no, 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 you don't touch my child. Things have changed. The culture has changed since that time. And if somebody came to you and said, we're going to send you back to where your ancestors came from. Maybe your ancestors came from Ireland or England or wherever it may have been. If they came to you and said, we're going to send you back and you're going to live in England. Well, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be too happy about that. And if you sent me back to England, the thing is, I wouldn't suddenly become English. I would be an American in England. They would say, you live here, but you don't act like us. You don't, you don't talk like us. There's, there's just something different about you. You're, you're not quite one of us. And the same thing with the Israelites. Over 400 years, they had become familiar with Egyptian culture and religion. They had become familiar with the customs of Egypt. And God had to get that mindset out of the Israelites we can see that as soon as they get in the wilderness, they start to complain and say, we, sh we should have just stayed in Egypt. Things weren't really that bad in Egypt. They get to where Moses gets the Ten Commandments, and the first thing they do is say, we need a golden calf like they had in Egypt. We need a God like they had back in Egypt. They had a mindset that they had developed in Egypt, and they had a mindset of slaves, when they get to the promised land, you know, they're getting ready to go into the promised land and, and they say, no, we can't do it. We're too weak. We're inferior. We can't, we can't take the promised land. In fact, that was, that was the whole reason that God took them through the wilderness. The Bible says that they, God avoided the land of the Philistines because they would be discouraged by war and want to return to Egypt. But the interesting thing is once they got into the desert they still had to fight some battles. God didn't say, I'm, I don't want you to have to fight battles. He said, I don't want you to be discouraged by battles. Why did God still make them have to fight these battles? Because he was trying to build up their strength. He was trying to let them know you're more than conquerors. You're not this, this weak, inferior people. 
I have a plan for you. you, I'm going to build your strength. I'm going to build your faith. I know many years ago, when I was still in Coshocton, my nephew had started going to the gym. And he was going every day and working out. And I had, I had never been to the gym in my life. I know you look at me and you say, that's hard to believe. You look like such a stud. You look like you spend hours in the gym. But no, I, I had never been to the gym in my life. And my nephew talked me into going to the gym with him. And on our way to the gym, he, he says, how much do you think you can bench press? And I said, well, I said, I don't know. I've never been to a gym before. I said, how much can you bench press? And he says, well, I've, I've been going for a while. And he says, I'm up to about 180 pounds now that I can bench press. And I said, well, if you can do 180 pounds, I can probably do at least 250. I can, I can bench press because I'm big. I'm strong. I can do it. He says, I don't know. That's, that's a lot of weight. I don't know if you can do. So we get there and he says, you want to go first? I said, go ahead. I'll watch you and and see how it's done. So he puts the weights on and he does a few and he says, go ahead and try it. And I said, well, that looked easy. You could handle that. Let's put some weight on there. Let's put it up to, you know, 250, whatever. So he puts it on there. We loaded up the, the thing and I get there and I'm laying on the bench and I'm laying underneath that rack and I push it and I get it off the hooks and all of a sudden, it comes down across my chest and pins me onto that bench. And I learned the importance of having a good spotter that day because I did not have a good spotter. He was laying on the ground laughing at me as I'm pinned, kicking, and trying to get this weight off of my chest. And finally, I dumped it off to the side onto the floor, and he just thought that was the funniest thing. And then a couple years ago, I went and, and I thought, I'm going to get a personal trainer. And so we go to the gym and, and he says, let's go to the, let's do the dumbbells. So there's a, there's a rack along the wall of the dumbbells and it's got all the light ones down at one end and it's got the, the bigger ones down at the other side. And I said, I'm going to go work out. I said, so I walked over, I grabbed a 50 pound dumbbell because I'm like, I'm strong, I can lift 50 pounds, nothing to it. I can handle it. And, he's, and the trainer says, no, 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 come, come down to this side down here. So I thought, well, he probably wants me to warm up a little bit. So I walked down about halfway, and I thought, we'll, we'll start with a 25-pound weight. And I picked up. He says, no, 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 you leave that there. Come on down to this side. And he takes me all the way down to the end of the rack, and he gives me this little 10-pound weight this little tiny thing, barely fits in my hand. And he says, now you're just going to lift that up like that. And he says, we're just going to do a few reps of that. So I'm sitting there at this 10-pound weight. And the whole time I'm thinking, this is stupid. This is the dumbest thing. This isn't even a workout. I could do this all day long. 10 pounds is nothing. I can handle this. And this guy thinks I'm a sissy or something starting me with 10 pounds. And he says, do the other hand. So, okay, I switched. And I started with this hand. And this is my weak hand. And I can still do it. I have 10 pounds. I'm, that's nothing. I don't know why I'm wasting my time with the trainer. <clears throat> and I went home and I thought that was a complete waste of time. That wasn't even a workout. And the next morning I got up and went to brush my teeth. And I thought, oh, I can hardly lift my arms. And 
the whole reason he wanted me to start with that was because he said, you, you may be able to lift the 50 pounders once or twice, but you don't have the strength that you need to be able to start at that level. And it's the same thing with God. Sometimes we have, we have situations in our life and we want to pray, Lord, get us out of this situation. And Lord's saying, I'm going to give you the strength to go through that because I want to build your faith and I want to build your strength. And sometimes God has to deliver us from our own fears and doubts and insecurities by letting us go through some trials of our own to help build our strength. He's trying to develop a new mindset in you so that you respond differently than the world does when you're faced with problems. See, if you never, if you never got sick, you wouldn't know God was a healer. You wouldn't know that God was your strength if you never felt weak. And then the next thing God tells them, he says, I'm going to redeem you. Now, he already said he was going to bring them out. He already said he was going to deliver them. I thought, why would you also want to redeem them? And I, I love history. I love, uh, you know, reading about history and going to visit historical sites and things like that. And I remembered hearing about slaves prior to the Civil War. They would escape into the north. And, you know, they'd go through the Underground Railroad and, and they would get to the northern states. And when they did, they were, they were no longer in chains. They were in a better place. But they still weren't safe. See, their masters could come into the north and take escaped slaves back. But occasionally, a slave would either be set free by their masters, or they would save enough money to purchase their own freedom, or someone would purchase their freedom for them. And when that would happen, they would receive papers that said, you are now a free man. Then now, once they got those papers, they didn't have to worry about someone coming and taking them back into slavery. If someone approached them and said, you look like a, a runaway slave, they could say, no, here's, here's my papers. I have, I'm a free man. And see, God paid the price for your freedom so you don't have to ever worry about being a slave to sin again. That's why he went to Calvary and shed his blood so that you could be free from sin. Sometimes people get set free from sin, but then that old taskmaster condemnation comes looking for them and whispers, you can't live this new life. What if people knew what you had done? They're living a better life, but they still feel the pull of their past pulling on them. But when those thoughts begin to creep into our mind, we can say, nope, I have, I have some papers here that say I've been set free. Jesus paid the price for my sin. My past no longer has a hold on me. And the wonderful thing is that God paid the ultimate price by shedding his blood for our sins. That means that there isn't even an auction. Nobody can possibly pay a higher price than what God has already paid for you and me. So no matter what you may have done, he has already paid the price for your redemption. And the last thing that he tells them, he says, I'm going to take you for a people. This is, this is the same language that you hear at a wedding. 
The whole reason God brought his people out of bondage and paid the price for their redemption was because he wanted to have a relationship with them. See, this was a brand new concept for them. In Egypt, they served the gods because if they didn't, there would be consequences. If they didn't serve the gods, they, they may not get rain for their crops or they may not be protected during their travels. Or, so they had to keep the gods happy. It was a transactional exchange. I'll worship you, I'll sacrifice for you, and in exchange, I expect you to do these things for me. But with God, there's nothing I can possibly offer him. He doesn't need anything from me, and yet he still wants to have a relationship with me. Have you ever met somebody that was truly important or influential and thought, boy, I'd really like to get to know them better, but I don't want to bother them. I know that they're busy, but as powerful as God is, he still has time for you and me. He wants to have a relationship with us. He doesn't view you as an inconvenience or somebody that's wasting his time. He loves you and wants to spend time with you. We talked in the beginning about, uh, about you know, how important people have, have people that screen their mail and their calls for them because some people they just don't have time for. They're busy and but I was, I was watching an interview on, on YouTube with this guy. He was a multimillionaire. And he was talking about how he had two separate phones. And he said, one, if he had to give his phone number out for any reason, you know, you go to the store and they're like, what's your phone number? He would give him this phone number. And anybody that he was thinking about doing business with or anything like that, he would give them the same phone number. But then he said he had a second phone that he carried. And he said the only people that had that phone were his family. And he said it didn't matter what he was doing, if he was in a board meeting, if that phone rang, he would stop everything and he would answer that phone because he knew this isn't junk, this is family, this is, this is something that's important to me. And it's the same thing with God. We have a direct line to God. When we go to God in prayer, he doesn't have angels screening our prayers saying, well, you guys can deal with that one. It goes directly to him. And sometimes we can feel like we have to earn God's love. I've talked to people before and they say things like, well, when I get my life cleaned up, then I'll, I'll go to church. But you don't have to fix your life before God will love you. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before you even thought about looking for a relationship with God, he loved you enough to come and, and die for you. And every, every time that I talk about uh, the Israelites and being brought out of bondage and things of that nature, my mind always goes back to the story I read many years ago now. Matter of fact, I think it was the, the first sermon I ever preached in this church. I talked about a guy by the name of Shindong Hayek. And this, this story was uh, at the time, he was the only person who had ever escaped from a North Korean prisoner of war camp that had been born, he was born in the prison of war camp. They had had other people that have escaped, but he was the only one that had been born in a prison camp and escaped. And they, he was telling the interviewer about his experience in the prison camp, and he's describing all the, 
the torture and everything that he had to go through. And then at the end of it, she says to him, she says, that must have been awful. You, you must have hated your life. You must have hated the guards. And he says, no. He says, I didn't have any hatred toward the guards. I didn't have any hatred toward my life. He says, I didn't know the life I lived was wrong. He says, I was born to it. He said, that's the only life that I had ever known. And I, I, think, I think about that and I thought, how, how often people going through life today, just living their life and thinking, this is the only life I've ever known. This is the only, this is the only way things will ever be. Maybe like the children of Israel in Egypt, they'd been slaves for so long, they probably said, this is just our lot in life. This is just what we're going to be. This is just how things are. But with Shindong Haik, somebody came along and was put into the prison camp with him that had been on the outside. They had traveled the world. They had seen what life was like outside the prison camp. And they began to tell him what life was like. He'd never heard music before. They taught him songs and they taught him about life outside the prison camp. And that gave him a desire to escape and experience this outside life for himself. And see, the Israelites, they didn't have a personal experience with God either until he gave them a testimony. And he gave them a personal experience. By the time they got on the other side of the Red Sea, they had a testimony. They began to sing songs and dance about and talk about how God was a deliverer. Their enemies had been drowned in the Red Sea. They had a powerful testimony that even from that point on, even years later, David would write songs talking about God as a deliverer. Because from that point on, they had a testimony. And I thought, when God lets us go through things many times, what he is doing is he's giving us a testimony. And the entire point of us having a testimony is so we can go to others and tell them what the Lord has done for us. People that may not have a personal experience with God, we can share our testimony with them and say, let me tell you what God has done in my life. It is our responsibility to share what God has done for us. So, in closing, I don't know, you know necessarily what you're going through, but I hope you got tonight a message from the king because he's got the same message for you that he gave to the Israelites. If you're in a situation and you say, I don't know how God can get me out of this situation, I want you to know God can deliver you. Maybe you've got a situation in your mind where you just, you, you think, I, I just, I don't feel qualified. I, I don't feel capable. And God can deliver you. He wants to do something in your life to give you a testimony. He loves you enough that he came and died for you and paid the price for your redemption. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And maybe you've already experienced all those things. Maybe you already have a testimony Maybe you can tell what God has done in your life. And if that's the case, that's a wonderful thing. If that's the case, then just remember it's our responsibility to share what God has done for us to others that may not know God 
in the same way that we do. We have that responsibility to share what God has done for us. Bishop? Glory. That was great. Amen. I've never had uh, anyone really, really important call me up, but uh, we were all working at the uh, Lone Oak High School. Sister Janice Showstrand was teaching Spanish, and my wife was teaching art, and I was directing special ed, and um, a call came, secretary in the office answered it, and the individual on the other end said, uh, I'm calling for the President of the United States, and I would like to speak to Mrs. Janice Shostrand. And the secretary said, now, what kind of joke is this? She's in class, and uh, we can't get her out right now. And uh, I want to know who this is, what kind of joke you're trying to play. And the individual said, ma'am, do you understand that the President of the United States wants to talk to Mrs. Janice Shostrand? Please get her out of class. He wants to talk to her. And she said, uh, uh, okay, uh, I'll, uh, I'll get her. So she told the principal, and the principal said, well, get her out of class. And uh, so she came, and the office staff all stood there uh, wanting to hear what was going on. And uh, when she finished, she said, yes, sir. I'll do that, and we will arrange to be there. And so they said, "What did, was that really the president? And she said, yes. She said, it was President Bill Clinton then. It was about 1992 or three. His mother had passed away. She lived in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and, and uh, he wanted her to come and bring our church chorale. He wanted to her to sing at the uh, funeral service. And of course, uh, the secretary said, I, I, I just couldn't believe that the, the president would be calling, uh, you know, our high school and wanting to talk to you and so on. Of course, she said, well, I couldn't either. Well, I, I've never had a phone call from the president. But you know what? I talk to the King of Kings every day. And in fact, he talks to me every day. Every time I pick up the word, the King of Kings talks to me. Thank the Lord. And I can talk to him. Aren't you glad? Praise God. May not have the president call us, but we do know the King of Kings. Let's stand. In fact, let's just talk to him and thank him 
for his word tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence, and we're glad, Lord, that we can talk to the King of kings. Thank God, the Lord of lords. We're glad, Lord, we can, you can speak to our hearts every day. We pick up your word. We're so thankful for your word tonight. Glad for your presence. Bless us, keep us, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen, amen. God bless you. Shake hands at one another.